Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Silkenet. My guest for this show is Lil Fenn, who's a professor of history at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, she's author of, of a couple of books, most recently Encounters at the Heart of the World, A History of the Mandan People, a Native American group from North Dakota, which just came out a few months ago. And she's also the author of Pox Americana, uh, which is a history of smallpox and the era of the American Revolution, which came out in 2001. Uh, in our conversation today, we talk about uh, both books, and we also talk especially about the reception of her first book, Pox Americana, which came out uh, right at the same time, basically, as September 11th, and in the scares of biological warfare and, and the ways in which that book was received within that context. Uh, we also talked a bit about her uh, career before she became an academic, or at least uh, during the interim period in her academic career when she stopped uh, her graduate uh, study at Yale to spend a um, period of years as an auto mechanic, uh, which is a set of skills that she possesses that I definitely don't. Uh, but what that, how that shaped her academic uh, career afterwards and how it shaped the ways in which she's written and taught um, in the years since. Here's my conversation with Lil Fen. Well, Lil, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you, David. I'm delighted to be here. How are things in Colorado? Boy, springtime is slow coming, I can tell you. We had a huge snowstorm the other day, and, uh, you know, as a, as a transplanted North Carolinian yourself, um, you'll understand how dismaying that is in, in, in mid-May. Yeah. Well, I'm in, in North Dakota, when I was there, you know, I was there for five years. We'd have that you know, where the snow would show up in October and wouldn't leave until April or May sometimes. And it was a uh, any sign of spring was well well looked for. Yep, yep. Well, uh, we're going to visit North Dakota today, aren't we? Uh, in part, yes, among other places. But uh, so I guess it's been about you've been there two years in Colorado. Yep, I'm just finishing up my second year. I was realizing we moved out here about uh, just about two years ago to the day today. Okay. So. And is it what you thought it would be like? It is. It's been a great move. I love my department. Uh, it's really energized. Lots of people doing uh, Western history, the early West, environmental history. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a it's a really good place for me. Okay. And I guess that uh, sort of fits in with your book that just came out. Congratulations, by the way. I know you've been working on uh, the Mandan book for a while now. Um, I guess a good place to start would be what got you interested in the Mandans to begin with. That's not a Native American group most Americans think much about, except for Lewis and Carlick aficionados. You're right. Uh, most people are unaware that they have even heard of the Mandans until I remind them that Lewis and Clark spent their first winter living uh, uh, among them. Uh, what what get, got me interested in the Mandans was actually my first uh, historical monograph, which was a book called Pax Americana. Uh, and it was about a horrific smallpox epidemic that swept the entire North American continent between 1775 and 1782, which uh, you will recognize as almost exactly the years of the American Revolution. 
So uh, that epidemic affected uh, people in the East, people caught up in the upheavals of the American Revolution. It affected both British and American forces, but it also affected peoples all across the continent, uh, sweeping from, from Mexico, eventually north across the plains, and uh, burning itself out in Alaska. Mm -hmm. One of the groups affected was the Mandans. So this is how I encountered them. And I was really surprised in doing this research to find a major, major population hub in North America at the time of the American Revolution, probably you know, 10, 12, 15,000 people living out in North Dakota mm -hmm. at the junction of the Hart River and the Missouri River. And I, you know, I thought, you know, how, how is this possible? How is this possible? You know, here's a, a, a population hub, maybe approaching the size of Philadelphia at the time of the revolution, and we know nothing about it. And that's, that's what drew me out there and got really piqued my interest in the first place. And, and had you been out to North Dakota at that point when, when I, Pax Americana had come out? I had not been out to North Dakota at that point. And I have to say that I'm always drawn to the places that I write about. So I took a trip to North Dakota just to see if it resonated with me. You know, if this seemed to be a, a landscape that I wanted to write about, as well as a people that I wanted to write about. So I took a, I had another research project that was foundering at the time. And I, I felt like the cutting edge of early American history was actually in the West. Mm -hmm. So I flew out to Bismarck, rented a car, and started driving around, visiting uh, abandoned Mandan village sites, and was really captivated by the landscape and by the possibility of writing about this, about sort of resituating, recentering early American history to a place that, interestingly enough, turns out to be at the very center of the North American continent. Yeah, so right, right near Rugby, near where they've got that, that monument to the geographic center of North America. Yeah, have you visited that, that uh, spot? You know, I had a bunch of students from Rugby when I was in, in North Dakota State, and I asked... Really? Uh, no, you get, uh, you, get, you get lots of North Dakota, North Dakota geography uh, embedded in you when you're there for five years, and I always ask them, well, is, is it worth going to, to to see this monument? And they told me no. So, oh, but it's worth going to for the cafe. Well, I they persuaded me not to make the drive, but uh, <laughs> when when the locals weren't enthusiastic about it, but uh, uh, I, I spent a lot of time not that far from rugby, uh, so I have definitely driven those those same roads. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the obvious problem with with studying a group though, like the Mandan, is that they are really far away from any of the literate population centers. You know, how do you write a history of a people who are that far away from the kinds of written sources that you'd want? That is very true. And I sometimes marvel at the fact that I managed to write a very long book, a book that turned out probably 100 pages longer than I had hoped it would. Mm -hmm. I, I managed to write a very long book on based on little or no evidence, uh, but but that's I, I say that partly in jest 
uh, what I had to do, especially for the early periods, was turn to the kinds of evidence that historians are sometimes reluctant to use. And I refer specifically to archaeology, to landscape, to oral traditions, Mandan stories, and things like that. One of my quests, partly as a result of doing this book, is to do everything I can to just get rid of, eliminate this artificial divide we have at 1492, where archaeologists and anthropologists study everything before 1492, and historians pick up uh, with everything after 1492. Because the fact is that, you know, what occurred before 1492 is also history. We just Mm -hmm. need to read a different documentary record, we need to read an archaeological record instead of a, a written record, and it shaped what unfolded after 1492. So we've been, we've been missing, a, a, you know, 15,000 years of, of history sure. uh, by starting only with the, the voyage of Columbus or Leif Erikson or wherever yeah. you want to. And, and, and for the Mandan, 1492 would have meant nothing, at least, you know, the passage of the actual year. You know, exactly. 3,000 miles away from anywhere Columbus sailed. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They were busy moving. I mean, they were enduring all kinds. They were undergoing all kinds of change themselves at that time. It just wasn't related to European contact yeah. yet. Yeah. So for those people who aren't familiar with the Mandan, what makes them different from other uh Native groups in in the plains, maybe like compared to the Sioux or 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 some of the other groups that people might be more familiar with. Yeah, you know, when we think of plains peoples, we tend to think of natives on horseback, mm-hmm. uh, people like the Comanches or the Lakota, Dakota, the Sioux Sioux peoples. And first, we need to back up and realize that. Before 1700 or so, most Plains peoples would not have been on horseback. Uh, But uh, still, we think of Plains peoples as nomads, people following bison herds, hunting, camping, but being pretty much on the move, especially during the summer months. And this was not the case for the Mandans, nor was it the case for their neighbors to the north, the Hidatsas, and their neighbors to the south, the Arikaras. Uh, these were all sedentary farming peoples. They were phenomenal horticulturalists. Uh, women grew corn in absolutely enormous quantities, and uh, they they pretty much stayed foot stayed put. They uh, they would go out on summer bison hunts but they had permanent village sites and they lived in not in teepees which is the the classic sort of plains architecture that everybody thinks of but they lived in, instead in in something called an earth lodge uh, which was uh, the purview of women earth lodges were built by women they were sort of beautiful structures dome shaped uh, they were actually timber structures but they were covered with a a layer of earth and mm-hmm. grass, so they really merged with the landscape. They were, uh, they were which quite... is something you want to do in the winter in North Dakota. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you want you want a, a home that that uh, protects you from the wind. And they were quite marvelous. They were cool in the summer, and as you know, North Dakota summers can be pretty scorching too. Yeah, they were very warm in the winter, very well insulated in the winter. Now, on top of that, the the Mandans also lived in densely populated villages. Yeah, so, so they were kind of urban centers in the middle of an otherwise you know wide open plains landscape. And so I guess one of the things you do in your book is sort of suppose that this urbanization that happens with the Mandan is sort of a double edged sword for them. They're obviously amazingly successful at being a, a an urban society, but uh, it also in some ways sort of leads to their decimation over over the centuries it's true you know they progressively became more what you would call urban yeah uh, even during the the 13th and 14th centuries because of various ecological pressures they became they came under attack by other peoples and they started living in increasingly densely settled more fortified villages whereas they used to have villages, they at one time had villages that were more spread out and didn't necessarily have a surrounding palisade. So they became uh, increasingly urbanized by the late 15th century, by about the time of Columbus. Mm -hmm. And they did so clearly for, for military purposes. And, and it worked in terms of uh, being you know, a, mil a successful military strategy. They could fend off attacking peoples. Uh, and people love to attack the Mandans because they tended to have vast food stores, you know, thousands and thousands of bushels of corn stored in caches below ground. But then, you know, with the arrival of Europeans and Africans from the so-called Old World, these densely settled villages made them very vulnerable to infectious disease. When it when it reached them, uh, diseases circulated and just exploded in the Mandan villages. And all of that sort of leads to the sort of massive population decline that you talk about both in this book and in uh, Pax Americana. It's true. Uh, you know, we don't know when the first uh, epidemics struck. There is some fascinating archaeological evidence that's just emerged really in the 21st century. You know, archaeologists devoted much of their work in the 20th century on, along the Missouri River to salvage archaeology mm -hmm. as the Army Corps of Engineers built dams up and down the river. And just by chance, uh, the, the heart of the world, which is what the Mandans called their homeland at the the juncture of the of the heart of Missouri rivers, just by chance, that's an area that was not flooded. Hmm. So, comparatively little archaeology went on there during the 20th century, and instead, archaeologists were busy you know, excavating sites that were about to be flooded elsewhere on the river. So, the Mandans uh, were not deeply explored until the 21st century, and archaeologists using some innovative techniques, uh, magnetic radiometry. Uh, electrical resistance testing of the soil have ascertained that at least two of the village sites were much, much larger 
than we had ever imagined. Uh, and, and this has made us rethink you know, the population. It's made, it's made me, at least, rethink the possibility that old world diseases could have reached the Mandans, could have reached the upper Missouri River as early as the late 1500s. Uh, it, it appears really? that the Mandans, Mandans endured their first population collapse uh, in the late 1500s, which is a stunningly early date. Yeah. Now, this is before the Pilgrims. This is before the establishment of Quebec. This is before the, the establishment of Santa Fe. It's, bef- it, it, it's, it's a stunningly early date. Uh, so we have evidence of a, of a population collapse. We can't say for sure that it was an epidemic disease. They caused it could have been uh, could a drought, have been or yeah, or could have been attacked by other peoples. But uh, the possibility is there, and it's quite compelling evidence, I think. So, so the evidence suggests that that, that we could have had population collapse as early as say the 1580s, uh, 1590s, and then we have later evidence, very good documentary evidence, of smallpox reaching the Mandans. In, in 1781. It may also have reached the Mandans in 1730 and just devastated them with catastrophic consequences. So, so there aren't a whole lot of Mandan around today. If I'm, You've, you've had a chance to, to meet with some people who have Man, Mandan ancestry, haven't you? Yes, I have. Uh, the Mandans today are one of the three affiliated tribes on the Fort Berthold Reservation, which is up in the, the northwest corner, or not exactly the corner, but it's northwestern uh, in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. So the, the three affiliated tribes are Mandans, Hidatsas, and Arikaras. Those sort of plain, they're called Plains Village tribes. Who were, these, they were all horticulturalists living along the Missouri River. And at one point, the Mandans were reduced uh, to probably... 300 or so people after yet another smallpox epidemic struck them in 1837-1838. Now there are, you know, lots of there are Mandan descendants today, most of them have intermarried with other peoples, which was a long-standing Mandan tradition you know, to uh, sort of establish uh, diplomatic and mercantile ties with other peoples through intermarriage. And the Europeans have the same tradition, you know, we we know about uh, various uh, Monarchs sure, who have sure. <laughs> married one another to establish uh, military and political connections, uh, and the Mandans have done the same thing, and, and it, it certainly uh, is a viable strategy. Uh, the, the last Mandan speaker, Ed Benson, is quite elderly now, and and it will be it'll be a sad day when he when he passes away, because it's uh, it's not likely that the Mandan language will survive, at least in its full form, when he passes away. Hmm. But so you got to talk with with him and with some other Mandan descend, descendants when you were in North Dakota. Yeah, I've spoken with him, and then I I, uh, I was lucky enough to receive an email out of the blue. I believe it was back in two thousand and six from a Mandan uh, Nueta Wakikana, uh, a, a turtle turtle priest, a man named Cedric Redfeather, who. Uh, had a, actually had a vision um, in which the buffaloes called him to hold 
an Okipa ceremony, which was sort of the, the, the foundational ceremony for the Mandans. And he had just been Googling around the internet and he found me. <laughs> wow. Learned that I was working on a history of the Mandans and uh, invited me to come out and be a part of uh, the, the, the sort of ceremonial process, which really is a long process. It gave me a real appreciation for Mandan ceremonial life to see how many years it took for him to uh, pull off his Okipa ceremony. So you've met, we've mentioned the the Pax Americana, your your first monograph that also touches on the the Mandan, but explores this uh, largely unknown epidemic that happened at the time of the of the American Revolution. Um, a couple of things I was just looking back at, at the the media coverage of, of when that book came out, and, and two things struck me besides the the sort of glowing reviews the book had generally. One was the obsession that that lots of newspapers had on your your previous occupation before you finished your PhD. Uh, yeah, I, for those I, people I, who don't, you spent a what eight years as an auto mechanic before you went back to graduate school. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, my I, my career has not been a straight line from A to B. Uh, I I like to think that all my my walkabouts have uh, helped my work rather than hurt it. You know, it, it my experience as an auto mechanic came after I had passed my exams at Yale, and for some reason I was feeling unsettled, uncommitted about the dissertation topic I had chosen, which had nothing to do with Pax Americana. It was an entirely different dissertation topic. And I loved fixing cars. I loved messing around with cars. Each time I, I tore my engine down further, it was a revelation to me that, that I found very exciting. So I eventually bailed out of graduate school and turned wrenches for eight years or so in, in North Carolina. I learned a lot about... Uh, things far afield from auto mechanics actually in, in doing that, but I think there are lessons that probably have helped me in, in many, many ways, um, both inside and outside the academy. Well, I mean, I, I was just struck looking back at the number of, of times in which this sort of phenomenon of, uh, of an academic who could fix cars, uh, but, uh, but a female academic in particular that, that had this experience, I think, baffled uh, at least some of the news media. I remember the New York Times headline or review of your book was headlined, She Can Fix Your car, your Engine Too. Right, it's, yeah. It struck yeah. me as a very odd and, and strange way to sort of dismiss. It was a you know laudatory piece, but in some ways it was a slightly quirky and dismissive piece at the same time. Yeah, you know, it is what it is. Um, uh, my editor always used to say that she'd do anything to sell books. And yeah. There's no such thing as bad publicity. To be sure. Yeah. And uh, you know, I have to say that when I returned to graduate school after fixing cars, I was, uh, I, I was actually concerned about my prospects on the job market mm -hmm. because my background seemed so flaky. And what I found, much to my surprise, was that my time in the shop actually helped to crack the door open for me because 
it it elicited curiosity from people. Mm-hmm. So they put me on their interview list just because, hey, and this one ought to be a hoot, right? <laughs> and, uh, and and it, so it actually ended up helping me in the long run, at least professionally, uh, you know, sort of to get my foot in the door. I think it also shaped the kind of history that I do, though. How so? Well, I'm committed to to writing for the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have respect for the public's ability to grasp complexity, you know, if you, if it's laid out clearly. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I, I and I, I think that's uh, his, history is one of the humanities, and I think we need to reach out to our our fellows out there in the world, you know, and and write books that that matter to them, that that expand uh, their world, um, and that books that are accessible. Yeah, you know, so I, I I try to write clear prose, you know, and I'm really committed to that. I don't always succeed, but I. But I try to do it. You succeed and more my time than most in the shop. Us. My yeah. time in the shop really helped to cement that commitment. I would imagine it also shaped the way you relate to students in the classroom, too. You know, I think it did change that. Um, it made me comfortable with disagreement. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, in the shop, I had lots of disagreements all the time, you know. And and when you're working on cars, and there's somebody else in the bay next to you, you're talking about all kinds of stuff all day long. And well, we differed a lot, mm-hmm. uh, especially on social and political issues. And I learned that it was okay for me to love people and really care about people with whom I had profound differences. And and I think somehow that transferred to the classroom, and I found you know it, when I get course evaluation course evaluations at the end of the semester, my students often comment that they feel comfortable saying what they think even if they know that I don't necessarily agree with it. Hmm. And I, and, I, and I attribute that to my time in the shop. So it's the other thing that sort of struck me looking back at. at Pax Americana uh, was in this sort of unfortunate and fortunate time, timing simultaneously, but the book came out shortly after September 11th, uh, I guess. At least it came out in 2001. It did. It came out in October 2001, so it came out right on the heels of 9-11. Uh, and right on the heels of, of the sort of anthrax scares, which I, I guess nobody talks about much anymore, but were... Uh, you know, a big scare at the time that uh, these packages, yeah. the threat and, and of biological warfare more broadly. That's true. And I had also written an article on biological warfare mm-hmm. in early American history. And so, you know, it, it was a kind of a, a convergence of events and interests. And I have very mixed feelings about it in retrospect. Uh, you know, I do think that we need to address by, you know, the, the long history of biological warfare and its implications for Native Americans. It may not have been done often, but mm-hmm. it's clear that the that attempts were made, and that's profoundly disturbing in its own right. 
so, so yeah, the media got pretty interested and obsessed, in, in fact, with the possibility that smallpox could return as an agent of biological terror. Mm-hmm. Smallpox is the only disease that, the only human disease, I, sh- I should say, that we have successfully er- eradicated. And what this means is that none of us are vaccinated mm-hmm. against smallpox anymore, unless we're in the military or unless we're working in a bioweapons lab or a smallpox lab or something like that. Um, but none of us are vaccinated anymore, aside from those folks. And as a, as, a, as a population, we're all vulnerable to smallpox again. So if it were released from the laboratory... If somebody decided to use it as a weapon of war, it could have very serious consequences. Now, do I think that's likely? Absolutely not. Um, you talk don't about, know? Oh, Why not? No, I, I don't think it's likely at all. Well, for one thing, you know, if you're a terrorist and you're going to use a, 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 a weapon like smallpox, how are you going to pe- keep your family, your people, from being infected? Yeah, talk about blowback. Sure. Uh, sure. I I just don't I think it's likely at all. Uh, and, and and in retrospect, I I have I I wish I hadn't gotten caught up in all of that buzz around nine eleven. Uh, but you know, nine eleven was nine eleven, and we were all caught up in it. Yeah, but I I feel like I helped to fuel almost a, a misallocation of national resources so that we spent uh, an, an inordinate amount of money worrying about biological terrorism when really we should work on vaccinating kids, clean drinking water, you know, addressing climate change and things like that. that those, those are probably higher risk to us than smallpox is as a biological weapon. Well, I mean, I, mean, I remember the... CNN and other people talking to you and, and half their questions would be at the beginning would be about your book and about the epidemic during the American Revolution. And then the second half of the interview would always be about the, the likelihood of a terrorist attack today and how prepared we were for that. Uh, and, you know, we yeah, didn't feel qualified to answer those questions, but I'm not qualified to answer anything outside of my century. Uh, well, it's really true. I mean, you know, people thought, you know, I worked on the 18th century, <laughs> yeah. and people thought that I would have some insight into uh, which bioweapons lab had <laughs> which viruses and, what, you know, whether they had spliced smallpox with Ebola and whether that was a viable bi- biological weapon. And uh, yeah, mo- many, if not most of those questions were questions that I'm absolutely unqualified to answer. You know, I can address the basic questions uh, of uh, you know, what happens if you get smallpox and you haven't been vaccinated or your vaccination has worn off and things like that. You know, I can address basic epidemiology, but I don't know the ins and outs of the, the bioweapons. Yeah, you don't have a classified clearance to... Uh, I do not. <laughs> no. no. So how, how did you get interested in smallpox in the first place? Um, boy... Well, it, it happened when I was still in the shop. And, you know, my learning curve fixing cars had begun to flatten a little bit. And, but I could say that one of the great virtues of doing manual labor is that at 5 o'clock, 
you go home. Mm-hmm. You don't carry your work home with you. You can drink beer and you can read whatever you want. You don't have this sort of endless pile of academic journals and reading lists that uh, you're you're always behind on. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine, Marjolaine Cars, gave me a novel called The Horseman on the Roof. It's a, a French novel by a man named Jean Giannot, I believe it was written in the 1950s. And it's about a cholera epidemic. And it's about an, an Italian nobleman trying to make his way home through Provence in the middle of a, this horrific 19th century cholera epidemic. And it was absolutely beautiful. And I became just fascinated by the way Giono was able to write beautifully about something terrible. Mm-hmm. And that got me thinking, it kind of took me back to what I thought was a very small outbreak of smallpox on the plains of Western Canada in the 18th century. And I, I, and I had written about that as a part of my senior honors essay at Duke University as, a, as an undergraduate. So I started thinking about this, and I started thinking, man, you know, I wonder if I could write about that little smallpox outbreak in a similarly compelling fashion. And that basically catapulted me back into graduate school, and in the course of researching my dissertation prospectus, in order to get Yale to readmit me, mm-hmm. I realized that I was on to not a small outbreak of smallpox in Western Canada, but an enormous outbreak of smallpox that uh, spanned North America, and in fact extended in, into South America as well. And that's a that's a whole different book somebody needs to write is the story of this epidemic epidemic in Latin America and, and South America. That's one of the most remarkable things about this book is it takes this the story and, and you could see that some people in the 18th century were aware of bits and pieces of it. You know, they knew what was going on in Boston or in Philadelphia or, or you know, on Hudson Bay, but but then able to sort of piece the whole thing together and, and witness something that uh, people yeah, at the time were not aware it's of. A story that, it's a story that's only possible, we, we can only reconstruct in retrospect. You know, none of the victims, none of the witnesses at the time were fully aware of the scope of the catastrophe. You know, I and I would argue that here in the years of the American Revolution, it's actually smallpox that's the common thread. Uh, it's, it's, it's smallpox that's the common experience of Americans all across the continent in, in these years, and it reshaped it reshaped what unfolded then in the nineteenth century too. It seemed like you're sort of right on. You were right on the the, the cusp of this the whole sort of wave of historiography that's trying to look at early American history, revolutionary America that isn't so centered on the East Coast and isn't predicated on a, on a frontier kind of narrative that starts in the East and ends up in the West. Yeah, that that that's that's definitely the case, and and I'm happy to say that that kind of work has uh, proliferated in the years since. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I'll add that I was very much unaware of what I was doing 
you know, I wasn't self-conscious about, you know, doing, say, transnational history, which was also an emerging buzzword and remains a buzzword today. You know, but, but there I was doing transnational history because I was spanning, you know, Spanish um, people, Spanish-speaking peoples, native peoples, you know, British America, uh, the, the, the emerging United States. But to me, it was just sort of driven by the evidence of smallpox. You know, people sometimes ask me what my preferred methodology is. And my preferred methodology is common sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll use the evidence that's there, and then I'll try to think creatively about what other kinds of evidence might speak to me. Um, and so, so, yeah, it... it that book did uh, fit into this newly emerging uh, e- approach to the early period, but I was blissfully unaware of it at the time. Hmm. So it may be premature of me to ask this, but w- what's the next project now that the uh, Mandan book is, is out in the public? You know, my next project was generated by the Mandan book. My next project is going to be a biography of Sacagawea. Oh, Okay. Uh, and obviously there have been many, many biographies of Sacagawea. She and, and Pocahontas, I think, uh, may well be the most famous women in American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'd like to do is use Sacagawea as really a device to get at the larger history of the Northern Plains and Rockies. You know, we, we, we know very little about Sacagawea's life, and we're not going to... un unearth any new specific evidence related to her, I don't think. But I, I, what I want to do is use her as, as, as a way to get at something bigger. In a way, I, it'll be sort of a bait and switch, but I want to use Sacagawea to, to convey this bigger history to uh, a wider audience. That sounds really fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading that when, when, when it comes out. Yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be fun to write. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge of inter, interspersing biography with, uh, with, uh, with broader history. Oh, great. Well, it's been really great having you on the show and really great to, to catch up a little bit. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure speaking with you again after all these years. Well, that was my conversation with Lil Fen. After uh, we finished recording the episode, I got a chance to talk with a little bit more and got a chance to talk with her husband, Peter Wood, who, uh, unfortunately, we didn't record the conversation, but Peter was a longtime professor of history at Duke University, author I think most people are familiar with his book, Black Majority, about uh, colonial South Carolina and slavery in colonial South Carolina. And Peter was probably my biggest mentor as an undergraduate uh, student when I was at Duke University, and hopefully we'll have a chance to have him on the show uh, at some point in the future. As always, uh, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to suggest a uh, guest, if you know an interesting American historian that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, uh, please email me at AmericanHistoryUntucked at gmail.com. I've got a website for the show, AmericanHistoryUntucked.blogspot.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, and you can follow us uh, on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Till next time.